Our sermon text comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. We are looking at Acts chapter 2 today. And if you go onto our website, um, it's a lot of letters.org. Uh, we got a short one, jprocks.org. You can get there fast. If you go there and you search through the scripture uh, references, I think you're going to find that I've preached on this passage more than any other passage. Some of you have probably heard me preach on this passage. Um, if it's not the number one, then it's at least up in the top. And, and that's because this is a great passage. This is one of my favorite passages, as a matter of fact. I think as we dig through this, we can find out a lot of stuff about who God is. We can find a lot of stuff about how the church works, all the different strategies uh, that, that the church should employ, different things that we should do. This passage is a, a deep well. Uh, it, it deserves to be revisited. But today, instead of diving immediately down into some exegesis, instead of picking apart those words and phrases, uh, instead, I just want to start this morning by, by telling you a story. Actually, I want to tell you a fairy tale. Maybe it's one you haven't heard. I'd never heard it before. I read it this week. It's an old Scottish fairy tale. It is called The Girl and the Dead Man. Once upon a time, there was a woman with three daughters. And one day, the oldest daughter came to her mother and she said, I'm ready to go and seek my fortune. And so the mother, knowing that that would likely be a long journey, offered her daughter two options. She said, I will either bake you a large loaf of bread with a curse or a small loaf of bread with a blessing. And the girl thought about it, and she knew she had a long way to go, and she knew that uh, food was important for the trip. And so she chose to take the large loaf of bread, because that's what she needed. And as she went on this journey, she became hungry towards the night. She started to eat the bread. And as she ate the bread, these birds came down, and they said, we share some bread with us. We're hungry too. But the girl, she said, oh, I, don't, I hardly have enough for myself. I can't share. And so she ate the bread, and the night came, and she had a really hard time going to sleep. It was really cold in the forest, and she, she tossed and turned until the morning. And then she went on her journey, and she came across this cabin. And there at the cabin, she met a woman, and the woman said, I will employ you if you can do one task for me. In fact, I will make you very rich. If you can stay in this cabin, in this cabin is the dead body of my brother. And he comes awake at night. His body's restless. 
So she agreed to do this task and she goes into this cabin and she tries to stay awake and watch this dead body, but she's so tired from the night before that she falls asleep. And when the woman finds that she's fallen asleep at the task, she comes in and kills her and throws her in the backyard. Sometimes fairy tales are weird, right? This is an old one, you know. Well, then the second daughter goes to the mother and she says, I'm ready to seek my fortune. And she makes all the same choices. It goes the exact same way. Large loaf of bread, doesn't share with the birds, and pretty soon she's in a pile in the backyard at this old lady's house. But then the third daughter comes, the youngest daughter, and she says, Mother, I'm ready to seek my fortune. But instead, she chooses the small loaf of bread and the blessing because she knows that that blessing is worth more. And she goes into the woods and she starts to eat her small loaf of bread and the birds come down and they say, would you share your bread with us? And she says, I don't have much, but what I do have, I'm happy to share with you. And so they eat the bread together and when the night comes, the birds wrap their arms around her and they warm her so that she can sleep the night. She wakes up refreshed in the morning and she goes and she meets that same old woman and she agrees to this crazy task and so as she's sitting there in the night watching this dead body, it starts to stir and she hits it with the club and he doesn't wake up. And when the woman discovers that she has fulfilled her task, she says, you've done a great job. Here's gold and here's silver and here is a magic potion. And so she takes the potion, she walks in the backyard, she pours it on her two sisters, they pop back up to life and they all walk home wealthy and happy. She's made her fortune. That's the end of the story of the girl and the dead man. Now you might be thinking, what the heck does that have to do <laughs> with Acts chapter 2? It's a fair question. <laughs> well, when I think about that story, I think about two ways of viewing the world. Either we live in a disenchanted world of scarcity. A world where what you see is what you get. Where a loaf of bread is the thing that matters the most and the blessing and the curse, it doesn't matter at all. Or, we live in a transcendent world. A world of abundance. Where there is more than just what we see. Where a blessing is worth more than a loaf of bread. Where there is a God at work who could actually feed 5,000 from just a few loaves. Where we have a living Savior who promises us an abundant life. When I look at Acts chapter 2, this newly formed church, and then I look at the church now, when I look at our church, I see that there is a disconnect. When I think about these people, these are a people who could not conceive of protecting their resources. These are a people who they were filled with awe. They were filled with wonder. They had glad and generous hearts. But when I think about the church today, when I think about us, I think about a people who, who live in this scarcity mentality. We see a passage like this with all these different activities, and we, we see it as a to-do list, right? It says, well, we got to read the Word, 
We need to partake of the sacraments. We need to give to the poor and pray. And we need to share meals with each other. And we need to attend church regularly. And before we get to the end of the passage, we're already counting the cost. We say, I can't do all that. I'm so busy. I'm, I'm tired. I don't have enough to share. So here's the point this morning. I'm just going to tell it to you right at the beginning. The point this morning is our disenchanted world is a world of scarcity. But God's transcendent world is a world of abundance. Our disenchanted world is a world of scarcity, but God's transcendent world is a world of abundance. So for us to understand what that means, I'm just going to ask us two simple questions this morning. How did we become disenchanted and what do we do about it? How did we become disenchanted and what do we do about it? Okay, so how do we become disenchanted? Lately I've been reading this book that I really like a lot. It's called uh, Recapturing the Wonder. I think I told you about it yesterday, Alice. It's, uh, it's by this guy named Mike Cosper. And uh, it's really resonating with me. In fact, a lot of these ideas come from what I've been reading from him. And uh, He tells the story in the beginning of this book of, of going to visit a megachurch. Uh, one of those, you know, if you've ever been to a megachurch before, big, overproduced. He said there were more people helping in the parking lot than most people have in their churches. And he said as they got in, uh, during the, the service, they had this giant cross on the stage. And at one point, this blazing light shone out from behind it during the middle of one of these musical numbers. And after the service, he was having lunch with his dad. And his dad asked him, did you think that was real? Meaning, did you think that was a miracle? Did you think that God is the one who lit up that cross? And, and Mike, as he responded to that, was... was First of all, he was kind of shocked because he knew that his dad was uh, like an architect. He was not a gullible person. He was shocked to think that, that he could believe such a thing. But then he was even more shocked when he realized how quickly he dismissed the possibility. When his dad asked him that question, he realized in that moment that he lived in a world where that couldn't happen. He lived in a world where that wasn't a possibility. He lived in a world where he never expected that God would really show up. And that people who did think that were foolish people. And he's not alone, right? That is the spirit of the age, is it not? Some philosophers have, have written on this lately and they would say that this is the difference, the way we live now is the difference between living in the universe and living in the cosmos. Rather than living in the cosmos, this, this kind of open creation that God has made, we live in a universe that's closed, where everything inside of it is rational, reasonable, logical, knowable, everything can be explained. And that view of the world, that closed view of the world, it, it excludes the idea that there are things uh, that go on that we can't understand, that we can't fully know. 
Another way of putting it is that we live in a world without magic. We live in a world that has been disenchanted where what you see is what you get. And you know, you know what this is like, right? To know something in this universe, the way you know something is to break it down, to dissect it, to tear it apart. And so we know about molecules. We know about atoms. We know about mathematical equations. We search for an evolutionary basis behind every human drive to try to explain why things are the way they are. And those things aren't bad, right? Those things have their, their purpose. You know, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm very happy to have antibiotics and aerodynamics. Those are great things. Science is good. But this passage says that there is more to our world than that. Science, it can tell you how photosynthesis works. But it can't tell you why a bouquet makes you cry. It can't tell you why standing next to a, a giant oak tree can take your breath away. Science can tell you about the, the temperature that you need to heat ceramics to make a sculpture. But it can't tell you why that sculpture would, would capture a piece of your heart. And that's more than just an interesting observation. It's important for us to understand this is the world we live in because this world is the, church, the world where our church exists. This is the world that we have grown up in. This is the culture that has shaped you and shaped me. This is the culture that has shaped our church. We live in a world where spiritual things are dismissed as superstition, as silliness. We're taught not to talk about those things too much. Don't overemphasize the power of God. Don't embarrass yourself. Instead, let's find the scientific approach to the church. Let's pick it apart. Let's find the strategies that work, right? Let's figure out the good programs. Let's entertain people. Let's advertise. Here's the methods, right? Here's the kind of music that we should play. Here are the subjects that you should preach on to get butts in the seats. And here are the books. These books, these will make the mature disciples. These will teach us how to pray. This is going to explain how you would become a multi-ethnic church. Whatever it is, you name it, we find the science behind it. And then we get into a conference room and we sit down and we do the math. We find out how many people it's going to take to accomplish that. We plan our schedule and we proceed. But when you do church that way, there's no magic. When you do church that way, there's no mystery. Or to put it theologically, when you do church that way, there is no room for the Holy Spirit. There is no power in that. And so that means when things go well, when you follow that model, when things go well, we congratulate ourselves. We celebrate. We, we write books on it, maybe. We, we host conferences to tell other people how to do it. And when things go poorly, we burn out. We get tired. We're like those first two girls in the story where we, we get protective 
over these little bits of bread that we have because we believe that's all we have. We get consumed by this sense of scarcity and we die. So how did we get so disenchanted? Well, we got here because we treat the church like it's any other place. We got here by believing in a disenchanted world where God can't do anything, where he won't do anything, where it is not expected that he's going to show up. So what do we do about it? Well, with that lens, okay, this lens of abundance versus scarcity, the closed universe versus the open cosmos, let's go back and let's look at Acts chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. I can't remember what page it is. If you don't own a Bible, take one of these with you. We, would, we want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. Read it. Get to know it. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. What page is it? Somebody shout it out. 531. 531. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This church has everything, right? They have robust, Christ-centered worship. They have communion. They have miracles. They have faith. They have all kinds of stuff, right? They've got, they got generosity. They've got, they've got mercy and justice. They have good attendance at their Sunday services. They've, they've, got, they've got miracles. They've got... Uh, Different people coming together from different races and classes. They have powerful evangelism where people are joining up with them every single day. Now, what strategies did they use to do that? None, right? They didn't use any strategies. God did it. What happened, if you read the chapter before it, is it says what happened was the Holy Spirit showed up and the Holy Spirit empowered Peter to preach in a way that everybody could understand. And he said to them, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Holy Spirit showed up and showed people their sin. He showed people their Savior. And then the Holy Spirit saved some people. It says, then they said, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with that, 3,000 people joined the church that day. That's the healthiest church that's ever been built. Now, maybe we have the tendency to, to read Acts chapter 2 today and we can just get disillusioned by it. 
This is something we, we can't do, right? It's a, something we, we can't reproduce with any kind of strategy. But I want you to see it differently. I want you to see that this is actually really good news for us this morning. Because we live in the same world that they do. We have the same Holy Spirit that they had. We have the same Jesus who is alive and reigning on the throne today that they had. What do we do about our disenchantment? That's the question, right? What do we do? Well, we need to believe. We need to believe that the magic hasn't left the universe. We get so bogged down with the church. We've lost that sense of awe. We've lost that sense of wonder. We've lost that sense that we have communion with a powerful, living God. We've gotten lost in the closed universe. We've gotten lost in this place where where God can't show up. I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about God showing up, and I was reminded of uh, the burning bush. We just read it um, as the Old Testament reading. But you, you heard the story. Remember how it goes down? Moses is wandering through the desert, looking around, and he says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. I just thought about that moment where, where Moses sees this thing, and he's like, I'm going to go check that out. You know, what would we do today if we saw that? You know, boop, boop, Siri, why do bushes catch on fire? <laughs> and then we keep walking. We expect that there is a reasonable, rational solution for any problem that we face. Think of what Moses would have missed out on if that was his view of the world. And I'm not pointing fingers, okay? I'm going to be honest. I am the chief of sinners here. I'm the worst of this. I, I was very convicted this week because I know that I your pastor, don't believe that God's going to show up. I worry that I don't believe he ever shows up. I was talking to a friend of mine about that this week on the phone. Uh, He was actually an older, wiser pastor. He's retired. And I was just letting him know how I've been doing, some of the difficulties I've been facing, and mostly just how down I was feeling. And you know his advice was, he said, look, Logan, you just got to get your mojo back. (laughs) And I was like, what? He's like, you got to get your mojo back. You got to remember what you're doing there in the first place. You got to remember that you serve a powerful God who redeems people's lives. You've got to remember that you have been sent there by God to see amazing things take place. And then he said something to me that really scared me. He said, I'm going to pray for you. 
I'm going to pray for you that, that before the end of next month, you will personally lead three people to Christ. And when he said that, in my closed universe, I started immediately examining his theology. What kind of, you know, is it, is it really practically good for him to, to pick a specific number in a timeline? Is that, is that biblical? Is that godly? Is that fair? And then I started thinking about statistics. I started thinking about the 13 years I've been doing ministry here and the handful of people I've seen come to faith. And then I started thinking about how much effort that would take to share the gospel until three people came to faith. And then I started thinking about my time burdens and how much hard work it was. And then I just started thinking about my loaf of bread. I can't afford to share. I'm so impoverished. I barely have enough. And I told him, I said, I'd love nothing more than to see that happen. But my faith is weak. I don't believe it's going to happen. And he prayed for me. And I kid you not, guys, 20 minutes later, I was walking down the street, and I met this guy. <laughs> he was sitting on a bench by himself. And <laughs> These are tears of joy. But I asked him what his name was. And it was something from the Bible. <laughs> so I asked him if he knew what that was about. And I told him. One thing led to another. I told him I was a pastor. And he's like, oh, it's interesting. You know, I've been thinking, it's interesting you're talking to me. Because I was just telling my friend the other day that I was interested in learning more about religion. Especially the religions of the world. I want to study them and find out the different pieces of truth. And so I can compare and find the good stuff and, and know what I want to believe. And I said, well, you're in luck, because I just happen to have a bachelor's degree in comparative religion. <laughs> I can save you some time. All the religions are the same. Every single one of them. They all say the exact same thing. Every single one. They tell you what you need to do to get to God. They give you a set of rules to follow, a set of things to meditate on, a certain way to think, something to chant. Maybe the scales balance out and you get to be with God. Maybe you, your, your, your way of thinking is transformed and you get to ascend into nirvana. But they all give you some standard you're supposed to live by except for one. Do you know what that one is? He said no. He said it's Christianity. That's the only religion that, that says you can't do it. <laughs> it says you can't possibly keep the rules. In fact, it says your heart is the thing that's messed up. It says everything about you is corrupt. And so no matter how hard you try, you can never be good enough to get yourself up to God. But the great thing about Christianity is God came down. In the person of Jesus Christ, God came down because you couldn't come up. He lived a perfect life that you were supposed to live. He did all the things you couldn't do. And then he, he paid the penalty he, for your corruption. He died for you on the cross. I told him that Christianity is the only religion where you can't earn it. 
It's a gift. All you can do is repent and receive it. And you know what he said? I thought he was going to say, dude, leave me alone. (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) Keep walking. But no, he said, do you have any books I can read about that? I'd really like to talk to you more. Maybe we can meet up next week. You know, I really think maybe God sent you to me today. Folks, that didn't happen 2,000 years ago in a mystical, enchanted universe. That happened on Thursday. That happened on Thursday in Roxbury, Massachusetts. I was telling this man about a God who came down to save him. And I was reminded in that moment that that Jesus, he has ascended. He sits on his throne, but he has not left us as orphans. He's still here. He's still down here. His spirit is at work. That same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our church. It's at work in in this place for the glory of God and, and the joy of our city. And so my buddy on the phone, he, he said, the thing I needed to do to get my mojo back, he said, was, was to pray and to share the gospel. And the reason he said that was because when churches get bogged down with church stuff, whether it's because things are going great and there's just too much going on or because things are going bad and there's just too much going on, he says the first two things that tend to go are prayer and evangelism. But those are also the two places where you see the power of God at work. Those are the places where you experience the power of God in your life. Those are the places where we realize that we don't serve a God of scarcity, but a God of abundance. Look, there is is nothing modest about Acts chapter 2. Not a single thing. God is showing off in Acts chapter 2. He has spared no blessing on that church. Because that was a church that understood the gospel. That was a church that understood the message of the gospel. That there is plenty to go around. That there is plenty of grace for sin. That there is plenty of love for the unlovely. That there is plenty of welcome for the outcast. That there is plenty of food for the hungry. And there is plenty of magic left for the disenchanted. They were a church that believed that God is on the move. And maybe you're like me. Maybe lately you have been feeling like those disciples when Jesus was about to feed the 5,000, and they just had those few measly loaves of bread, and he said, this is, just send them home. This is an impossible task. Forget about it. Look around. Are you kidding me? But this task isn't impossible. This mission that we are on is no challenge for God. You think Boston is a tough place to share the gospel? How many people, how many Christians do you think there were on the morning of Pentecost? A handful? (laughs) 
And how many were there that night? 3,000. So why do I feel like three Christians in a few weeks is too much? Why do I feel like that's an impossible task? Why do I think that's a foolish thing to expect? Has God stopped saving people? Of course not. Our church exists to be reconciled to God and one another for the joy of the city. That's that's what we want you to learn. That joy of the city part, that means that we're not here only for ourselves. We're here for others. But here's the dirty little secret, guys. When the gospel spreads, when we start to see people coming to faith, when we start to see people coming into the kingdom, when we remember that we live in this abundant, transcendent cosmos, it's not just the city that gets joy. It's us. So, I guess that's my request this morning. My request is, is that I, w- I want to ask you, would you pray with me? As we head into this fall, as people are moving into this city, as they're figuring out what they're doing with their lives, as people are trying to get a fresh start, would you pray with me that we would rediscover a God who comes down? That we would inhabit a world with a living God, a God of abundance, a God who changes people's lives. Would you pray with me that we might see some people come to faith this month? What do you think? Is that crazy? Maybe that's you. One of the things that guy told me on the phone, he said, I'm going to pray that two people would come to faith in your church during one of your sermons. I don't know. I don't know where you are. Is that you today? Are you in need of a Savior? Are you recognizing that maybe there's more to this world than you can see? Are you looking for someone who would not, so you don't have to live up to God, but that God would come down to you? If that's you, I don't know. If you're here, I I just want to ask, when we have communion later, come up to me and let me know. I'll pray for you. And let let me pray for us all right now. Father, I want to ask first of all for your forgiveness. I want to pray that you would forgive us for living in a world of scarcity. Forgive us for being disillusioned. Forgive us for focusing so much on ourselves that we have lost sight of you. Lord, as we look at this church in Acts, we have a hunger for your abundance. Would you remind us of your provision? Would you remind us that there is plenty? And would you give us the faith to give and not hold back? Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.